Today's Roundup podcast, and we're going to go over a few news items from the past couple of weeks here at UC Santa Cruz. And it's just boring old us, Dan. We have no special guests. I know that's today. sad, but but we'll make up for it by having some unbelievably thrilling topics, such oh. as sentient or possibly non-sentient plants. <laughs> You're going to find out the truth. Can plants think? We're going to set that matter to rest for you. Oh, my God. Has my office plant been spying on me and reporting back? You know what? I keep moving my plant around because I feel like it's gathering intelligence against me. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll find out about that, even though it's just boring gathering old us. Just, just you and me. Yeah. Um, so I'm Gwen Jordanay, and I'm an editor for UC Santa Cruz News. I'm Dan White, and I'm a writer for UC Santa Cruz News. And we're going to talk about the recent news from UC Santa Cruz, all of which you can find at news.ucsc.edu. All right, so let's dive in. And yeah. I will, uh, I'll take the reins here. Um, hey, Dan, if a tree falls and no one's there to, there to hear it, does it feel pain and loneliness, you think? You know what? I think that certain species of trees are more sensitive than others. <laughs> like redwoods or... Maybe like eucalyptus because they're always (laughs) shedding their gnarly bark all over the place. And I don't know. Redwoods are kind of more stolid. And generally my conversations with redwoods feel pretty one-sided to me. But, you know. Yeah, they're kind of stoic. Well, um, no. Experts argue in a recent opinion (laughs) article. (laughs) They draw this conclusion from the research of Todd Feinberg and John Mallett, which explores the evolution of consciousness through comparative studies of simple and complex animal brains. Feinberg and Mallett concluded that only vertebrates, anthropods, and cephalopods possess the threshold brain structure for consciousness. And if there are animals that don't have consciousness, then you can be pretty confident that plants, which don't even have neurons, let alone brains, don't have it either. According to Lincoln Thais, Professor Emeritus of Molecular Cell and Developmental Biology at UC Santa Cruz. So I guess my plant's not spying on me. This is fairly upsetting news. Although, you know, I think it's (laughs) tremendously encouraging that cephalopods can think. (laughs) (laughs) They're doing Sudoku right now as we speak underwater. That's cool. Um, They're smarter than me. Yeah. I can't do Sudoku. (laughs) I I, I doubt that, but yeah, I can't do Sudoku. Um. The topic of whether plants can think, learn, and intentionally choose their actions has been under debate since the establishment of plant neurobiology as a field in 2006. Thais was an original signer of a letter arguing against the suggestion that plants have neurobiology to study at all. The biggest danger of anthropomorphizing plants in research is that it undermines the objectivity of the researcher, said Thais. Okay, woo! Yeah, so, now no that we've got that cleared up, ladies and gentlemen. My yeah. plant attacking me or scheming against me. There was actually a pseudo-documentary called The Secret Life of Plants that came out many years ago, and you can find this on YouTube where there's a, a scene with a screaming cabbage. <laughs> oh <my laughs> so I God. guess that Lincoln has really <laughs> seriously debunked the screaming cabbage scene. Yeah, so, I think so. Which so. I always wondered about when I was a kid. I always felt guilty oh. cutting into a cabbage. I thought, oh. what if? It was you silently know, screaming. Cabbage agony from mm. like, at what cost coleslaw, okay. you know? Well, at least you can lay that anxiety to rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what about my other that, myriad, that single myriad anxieties? It's sad. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good to know. It's good to know. 
So uh, next story, special places deserve special care, which you know I can agree with most definitely, which is precisely what a new UC Santa Cruz collaborative will bring to Southeast Asia, home to some of the most diverse and vibrant ecological zones in the world. Southeast Asia is threatened by a daunting array of environmental, economic, cultural, and political forces. Forests are being transformed into shrimp farms. Coastal cities like Jakarta are sinking into the mud and islands are disappearing as the region undergoes tremendous change. It's crazy to think of. Funded by a $1 million grant from the Henry Luce Foundation, the new Center for Southeast Asian Coastal Interactions, which they're calling Seacoast for short, at UC Santa Cruz will bring together scholars from the social sciences, humanities, and natural sciences to address the region's challenges. Led by Anna Tsing and Megan Thomas, professor of anthropology and associate professor of politics, respectively, Seacoast aims to cultivate what they call slow science, nurture the next generation of scholars, strengthen work in Southeast Asia at UCSC, and energize the field of Southeast Asian studies. The center will bring Southeast Asian studies into the pressing environmental questions of this era, marked by the unrelenting force of human impact on the planet, said Singh, who is a former Guggenheim fellow and is widely recognized for her pioneering interdisciplinary work. Driven by sweeping social and environmental change, the crises emerging in Southeast Asia reflect problems that are unfolding around the world. The scope and urgency of these problems demand a new approach, which is why Tsing and Thomas are embracing this thing called slow science. What they're calling slow science is it's supposed to reset expectations to value deliberation and the careful study of human and non-human actors and history rather than a rush to pursue questions that will yield quick results. Far-ranging project. Yeah. So so it all sounds super interesting, yeah, and I like that does. concept of slow science and taking their time to look at lots of things over a long time. Especially in this region where there's so much going on, and I, I, hope, it has, I hope it's got a long-range impact in I a good know, way. Me too. Yeah. So good work going on there. All right, so last story I've got. You've heard the saying, while the cat's away, the mice will play, right? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> More than once. Well, it's actually true. It's not just a metaphor for like your parents being out of town. <laughs> a new study shows that pumas and medium-sized carnivores lie low when they sense the presence of humans, which frees up the landscape for rodents to forage more brazenly. Those mice come out and just like strut around eating. Just absolutely <laughs> just fearless. Yeah. Fearless little mice. Humans are top predators of many wildlife species, and our mere presence can create a landscape of fear, according to researchers here at UC Santa Cruz. Fear of humans suppresses the movement and activity of pumas, bobcats, skunks, and opossums, which benefits small mammals. As their own predators respond to their fear of humans, deer mice and wood rats perceive less risk and, in turn, forage for food farther away and more intensively, they found. I wonder why the, the mice and the rats aren't afraid of human voices. You know, I was just going to say that. It's sort of interesting that you've got these gigantic apex predators who are apparently terrified by yeah. my soft voice, but then the little rats and <laughs> mice is just are like, nope, drawn to don't us. mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. They can get away faster, that's for sure. That's true. But, uh, you can just 
I'd just burrow down and run into a little crevice. But they seem like they're fairly high strung. If you've ever met a mouse or rat, they're true. quite. That's they're, true. They're, yeah, they're pretty <laughs> ramped up. So I don't know. Yeah. These findings are significant because as humans encroach on wild lands around the globe, ecologists are eager to understand the effects human humans and development have on wildlife. This may be the first large-scale experiment that documents how fear cascades through the food web from top predators to the smallest prey, according to senior author Chris Wilmers, a professor of environmental studies at UC Santa Cruz and director of the Santa Cruz Puma Project. The research reveals that the presence of humans can have fairly profound effects, even without activities and infrastructure like hunting or housing or roads, said Wilmers. So, wow, we're, we're having more of an impact than we even thought. Yes. Crazy. All right. I, I, that's, that's really surprising to me. It is, to me too. All right, um, Dan, so what's on your news radar? Aside from still reeling from the sentient plants news. Yeah, um, I know. I, it's shocking. Well, on, <laughs> in other news, however, okay. uh, now Charles Dickens... Uh-huh. Abrupt, abrupt shift here. Yes, uh, was a respected and best-selling author even way back when, even in his time, and and he died uh, about 150 years ago. Yeah. But you know what's really fascinating for me is just his books still have a pretty huge readership and uh, lasting relevance for various reasons. People keep rediscovering even some lesser-known Dickens texts because of their lasting relevance. Yeah. Now, certain social issues that he wrote about all those years ago can give us certain tools to help think about our recent or current circumstances. Now, that's certainly the case with the book Barnaby Rudge. You know, that's one of the lesser-known Dickens books. In fact, there are some people out there who think it's not one of his better efforts. But mm-hmm. and, you know, it enfolds in London in front of a backdrop of fear and violence and, and unrest. Now, Barnaby Rudge happens to be the featured book in this summer's Dickens Universe. It's a week of study and festivities at UC Santa Cruz, usually focused on a novel by uh, Charles Dickens, and it's a world-famous uh, organization mm-hmm. and, and, and festival. And 2019 marks the uh, you know, 2019 marks the 39th year of the popular annual gathering, which takes place wow. the week of, yeah, it's amazing, July 14th through, through uh, July 20th. Now, Barnaby Rudge depicts the 1780 anti-Catholic riots that have been described by historians as the largest, deadliest, and most protracted urban uprisings in all of British history. Wow. Now, John Jordan, director and co-founder of the Dickens Project, explained why this particular book was selected as the featured novel, even though it's not one of the the big, hot hot choices that people think, like David Copperfield. He explains that the riots it depicts were a major event of lawlessness fomented by strong and anti-Catholic feeling that culminated in five days of reckless destruction. We felt it was time to revisit this strange and neglected novel. Now, it turns out that Rudge has surprising and suggestive parallels with our own time. In fact, a contingent of students and their teacher, uh, Jacqueline Barrios, traveled from L.A. to UC Santa Cruz to launch an exhibition exploring the impact and history of the Los Angeles riots of 1992. Mm. Now, the students and the teacher come from the uh, James A. Fauché Learning Center, that's in uh, South LA. And these students did this intensive study of the riots. And in a sense, the, um, the Dickens book was kind of a lens, a means of examining that. Hmm. And uh, Barrios had the students take their study of 19th century literature out of the classroom and into the streets to explore the connections between the London riots of 1870 and the LA riots of 1992. I cast my students as storytellers of the two uprisings, said Barrios. I asked them, how can you be the Dickens of your time? Now, how nice. in, that's so interesting. Yeah, that, uh, love you that. Could, 
take a text that is so old and look at it as a means of interpretation to compare and contrast what's been going on in more recent times. So anyhow, that exhibit uh, was on display at the Eloise Smith Gallery at Cowell during the entire week of the Dickens universe. Um, so yeah. That's cool. Really what, an, what an interesting approach. I, I, love, I love the work they do at the school. A couple of years ago, they, um, th the students from that same school put on a brief rendition of Middlemarch by George Eliot. Talk yeah. about people being really ambitious. And I saw part of it, and that was really interesting. Um, you know, in, in, in other news, I have some sad news to impart. Um, a uh, highly respected and pioneering professor at UC Santa Cruz, Jasper Rose, founding faculty member at the university and a professor emeritus of art and history, uh, died on June 12th in Bath, England. Hmm. We'd been living in recent years. He was 89 years old. Okay. Now, um, it's funny, I did a story about pioneering art faculty at UC Santa Cruz, and his name came up really frequently. He was just a really, just a, someone with a, a lot of influence. He was a faculty member at UC Santa Cruz's Cal College when it opened in 1965, and as many of you know, that's the same year that the campus opened its doors to begin with, so he goes right back to the beginning, truly wow. a pioneer. He became the second provost of Cowell from 1970 through 1974, and in the uh, 80s, he served as a faculty member of Porter College until his retirement in 1986. Now, the current Cowell provost, Alan Christie, remarked that Rose was one of the most beloved figures in the history of Cowell. Countless students, colleagues, and faculty from the first 20 years of UC Santa Cruz had their lives transformed by their contact with uh, Jasper, said Crispy. Kid Christie. In fact, there is no telling the story of Cowell without telling the story of Jasper Rose. His classic history of Oxford and Cambridge was an influence on fellow founders like Paige Smith in imagining what college life could look like and what a collegiate university could accomplish. Hmm. Yes, and so uh, he definitely helped bring that, that Cambridge influence and uh, it sounds like he's had just a really lasting impact and very often people think of Cal as that foundational college. Yeah, That's yeah. where the Sammy the Slug icon came from. So many things sort of were a wellspring at Cal. So he will definitely yeah, he will be missed. Yeah, wow. It sounds like people were so fortunate to be able to study with him. Yes. He seemed like just a really good, just a wonderful mentor and thinker yeah. with a lasting legacy. Well, yes, he will be missed. And I do have some other news to share about the health implications of, of, of certain eating habits. Hmm. Now, tuna fish is considered a reasonably healthy food, correct? Yeah, If exactly. you reach for a tuna fish sandwich, you think, yeah, it's not like having beef brisket or fudge sundae, right? Mm -hmm. But I'd like to talk about a new survey revealing that most college students are not aware that eating large amounts of tuna fish uh, can potentially expose them to neurotoxic mercury. In oh, other words, no. harmful mercury. <laughs> and um, I guess the reason why that bothers me a little bit is I just... I guess I just always think of, of tuna fish as sort of a homely food choice. I mean, you get seared ahi tuna, that's really nice. But if you get yeah. the regular chopped up stuff from the can, that's just because you're hungry. There's no <laughs> wonderful, I mean, have you ever had a, have you ever been on a long hike, Gwen, and you're just so starving and think, gosh, I really, really just want a, want a tuna fish sandwich. No, you probably want a pizza <laughs> or something. So it's sort of weird that there's something that's kind of not a wonderful food that's kind of may be dangerous, but anyhow, researchers at UC Santa Cruz surveyed students outside of campus dining halls on their tuna consumption habits and knowledge of mercury exposure risks and also measured the mercury levels in hair samples from the students. That also freaked me out that that would show up in your hair. Right. Um, they found that hair mercury levels were closely correlated with how much tuna the students said they ate. Whoa. Can you believe oh, that? Oh, trippy. 
And for some students, their hair mer mercury measurements were above what is considered a level of concern. So in other words, oh people were thinking that's not all right to have that amount of mercury. It doesn't necessarily mean that they would be experiencing toxic effects, clarified uh, Myra Finkelstein, an associated adjunct professor of envi environmental toxicology at UC Santa Cruz. But it is a level at which it's recommended to try to lower your exposure. Our results were consistent with uh, other studies of mercury levels in hair from people who eat a lot of fish. You know, it's interesting that tuna and other really big and beefy ocean fish, the big mm -hmm. bruisers out there, mm -hmm. they contain these significant amounts of mercury in its most toxic form, which is methylmercury, and exposures to high level of that can unfortunately cause neurological damage. Yikes. And uh, because of its effect on neurological development and reproductive health, and I'm not trying to scare you all, but... I will continue. Concerns about mercury exposure are greatest for pregnant women and children. Mm -hmm. um, Finkelstein said college students should really think about limiting their exposure to mercury because their nervous systems are still developing. These yeah. are people who are, are yeah. young people yeah. and they're of reproductive age. Uh, so the study was prompted by her own experiences teaching students about mercury in the environment and hearing just about how much tuna some students eat. And she was pretty dumbfounded. That was the word she used. When students told me how much tuna they eat, some people consuming it uh, daily. And I should point out that graduate student uh, Yashuhiku Murata led the study and is the first author of a paper on the findings, which has been accepted for publication in environmental toxicology and chemistry. So, gosh, you know, just goes to show all things in moderation, even tuna fish sandwiches. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, word of warning, students. Mix it up. Gosh, Eat some tofu. All right. That is it for this time. Good as always to have you with us. And we will see you next time. Be well and pass the and tuna stop, fish. No, stop. Pass, pass stop on the, the tuna, tuna fish. <laughs> pass on. <laughs> okay, bye.